We are delighted to have with us the author of a brand new book, Praying in Public, Pat Quinn. Hello and welcome to Expositive Word, Pat. Hey, David, it's a, it's a great joy to be here. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Pat. Thank you. Pat, as well as being an author, I know you're a busy man working at the University Reformed Church in Michigan. Yes. Tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds. Okay, um, uh, the timer's going. So I came to faith uh, in the early 70s. Uh, uh, a big part of that was reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, uh, a great Brit. Um, and uh, I moved from uh, the Chicago area to East Lansing in 1973, really just to come to this church. I had no, I had not finished college. I had no place to live. I had no job. I loaded up everything I had in my 1960 uh, Plymouth station wagon and I moved here. And uh, I, I, I came here to, to learn and grow. I, I eventually went back to college, met my wife, Judy, and we will celebrate 45 years of marriage this December. Uh, I grew in my faith. I've, I've worked as a worship leader here. Uh, I'm an elder, uh, teacher. I, I consider myself sort of the third string preacher here at URC. I also taught 30 years, uh, taught Bible at a local Christian school. And in 2009, I came on staff at URC as the director of counseling ministries, which I've been doing ever since. So I counsel a number of people every week. I, I teach some training classes in counseling. Uh, I do some consulting. I do some teaching. And as I said, I'm the third string preacher. So Brilliant. How did I do? Did I get in under 60? I, well, even if you didn't, I enjoyed listening to that, Pat. So it's worth the extra time. So thank Great. you for that. Great. You've just written this brilliant book about praying in public. What can you remember about the first time that you prayed out loud in public? And how have you come to write a book about it? Well, I that's a great question. And I honestly don't remember the first time I prayed in public, but I'm sure I was nervous. <laughs> um, but I can tell you how I came to write the book. Um, in uh, 2004, Kevin DeYoung came to be pastor of University Reformed Church, and uh, he had some, he had strong ideas about what our worship should look like, and congregational prayer or some kind of pastoral prayer, he felt like was really uh, a significant part of worship. We had already been doing that, but I felt like it kind of got ramped up a bit when Kevin came. And so since I was a worship leader at the time, uh, I started taking um, public prayer more seriously. So I started writing out or typing out my prayers probably in about 2010. And I just collected them all with no idea that they would ever uh, be anything other than just prayers I prayed and led in the congregation. About 2016, I just started feeling kind of a nudge from the Lord that I felt like our church takes public prayer, congregational prayer seriously. We seek to do it well. And um, I wondered if that might be helpful to the church at large. And so I, I actually just took it upon myself to write an introduction to a book that didn't exist. Uh, in 2016, did some research and wrote an introduction. And then for various reasons, some personal, some church things, um, that just sat on a shelf for three years. Uh, it just nothing happened. And then in 2019, our church is very gracious to give us a sabbatical every seven years. And so I had a six-week sabbatical in the summer of 2019, and I thought, well, this might be a time to explore this. So I was hooked up with a literary agent 
that Kevin DeYoung and our current pastor Jason use uh, at Walgamuth uh, uh, Agency. And he was really, really helpful. Helped me walk through that book proposal thing, which is, which is quite a deal. I mean, it's like 20 some pages just to write a book proposal. Um, so uh, he pitched it to eight different publishers and there were two that were interested and one was Crossway, which just happened to be my favorite yeah, evangelical yeah. publisher. So then I had an introduction. I had all these prayers that I had saved for 10 years. And now I needed to figure out what that, what, how did I do that? You know, what, so it was a very deductive uh, process. So as I thought about all this, I came up with seven principles of writing or, or not necessarily writing, but preparing good congregational prayer. Um, and uh, again, worked through that 2020 and, and it was published last year. So I like to say, I kind of wrote the book backwards. I started yeah. with the prayers and then wrote an introduction and then figured out, okay, well, what makes good congregational prayer? And, and then wrote it. And then the last half of the book is all those prayers. Yeah. So that, that's kind of how it, how it came about. Yeah, yeah. Apart from the obvious, what are the main differences between private and corporate prayer? And is corporate prayer more powerful? Well, um, yeah, obvious, the obvious differences are one is corporate and one is just, <laughs> just personal. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me answer that, David, by just thinking about what are some distinctives of, of corporate prayer. First thing I would say is... Um, while I think anybody can lead the congregation in prayer, that's not something everybody would be expected to do. I think, I think primarily the people who are going to lead the whole congregation in prayer are pastors, elders, worship leaders, and mature Christians who are familiar with scripture, who love the church, who know the Lord. Um, so it's not something that everybody needs to feel like I need to be able to lead on Sunday morning. Uh, a distinctive of congregational prayer is the Bible promises, Jesus says, if any two agree on anything in prayer, it will be done for you. And so someone leading the whole congregation in prayer, the Lord loves that unity. He loves the congregation coming together. And all the way through the Bible, there are designated people who are leading people in prayer, the Levites, uh, David. Uh, Nehemiah, Daniel, uh, Paul writes, you know, in his letters he, that are meant to be read in the churches, he breaks out in prayer. So, so there's obviously designated people who are called and equipped to lead the, the congregation in prayer, and that's powerful. And we should expect when we're praying on Sunday morning, the Lord's really listening. And this is not just something we kind of do and get through, but there's power in that. I think another distinctive is that it's reminding the congregation that prayer is more than just um, praying uh, for our felt needs as individuals or the congregation. And that, that congregational prayer, public prayer, not in every prayer, but, but should include prayers of adoration, which I just include thanksgiving and praise both in that. There should be prayers of confession. We should be confessing our sin not just individually, but we should be confessing our sin as a, as a body. And I think a lot of churches don't do that. I think that would, 
that would be seen as kind of strange and maybe even damaging to our self-esteem. And then there should be prayers of supplication. um, But those should, those should move like in concentric circles, our own concerns, the concerns of other churches in the community, the concerns of our city and state and church and worldwide evangelism kind of moving in concentric circles. And so I think that corporate prayer uh, is powerful because it's, it's bringing God's people together in unity. It's reminding us of the, all the things that are important. And we're actually teaching our congregations how to pray. Yeah. And it's not unusual. One of the impetuses for me to think about writing this book was it wasn't unusual for me and other uh, people leading in prayer for someone to come up after the, con- after the service and say, do you have a copy of that prayer? Uh, you know, that maybe that prayer of confession. And I just ha- hand it to him, you know, because I had it, I had it saved and stuff. And yeah. so we're actually teaching the congregation what prayer is like. So I think in all those ways, uh, it's distinctive. I-, I mean, we know from the book of James that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective like Elijah, but there's something special <clears throat> when the whole congregation comes together and is led by someone who knows the Lord and can bring the congregation together and bring us into the throne room yeah. and praise him and confess our sins and offer supplication. Yeah, yeah. What can church history teach us in how to pray in congregational worship? Well, that's interesting. Uh, I, I, years ago, I bought a book. I think it's called Liturgies of the Western Church. By, I think it's by Bard Thompson. And it, it has in it all the way back to the early church and medieval church, the, the Latin liturgy. And then it's got liturgy of Martin Luther and John Calvin, the Anglicans, the Westminster Presbyterians, Wesleyans. It's got their liturgies and they're full of prayers, right? So what we learn and from church history, even the Protestant uh, tradition is that that worship is obviously our first priority. It's, it's what we're called to do first. And, and Protestants have done a lot of thinking about that and preparing liturgies uh, and even writing out prayers that have stood the test of time. So we, can, we see again that God has called and appointed pastors and elders and worship leaders to lead the congregation in an orderly way. That doesn't mean there's no room for spontaneity and so on, and certainly it's heartfelt. Um, So I think we learned that the congregational prayer is is integral to worship. It's important. It should be thought out, and uh, it should be biblical, and it should be comprehensive. It should, the, the, the reformers often prayed for, first of all, civil authorities. Then they prayed for the church's ministry. Then they prayed for uh, evangelism and salvation of all people, and then they pray for the afflicted. And I think sometimes our prayers kind of meander a little bit. They, they just kind of wander. Sometimes they hit important things, and sometimes they get repetitive. I think we can learn a lot from the liturgies, not that we have to follow them, but we can learn what uh, comprehensive worship and, and prayer looks like. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. You write about the seven guiding principles that can help keep us focused and on the right track. Tell us about those. <clears throat> yeah, this was my uh, deductive part. Okay, I've written all these prayers. How did I do that? What, what, what's important to congregational prayers? And so briefly, here are the seven. First of all, congregational prayer should include, as I already mentioned, adoration. That's 
That's the most basic posture of us as, as, as human beings. It should include confession. That's the most basic posture for, for sinners, right? And it should include supplication. So those three things, not in every prayer necessarily, but that should be the diet of, of congregational prayer. Uh, secondly, it should be Bible saturated. As evangelicals, we love the Bible. We want to preach the Bible. We want to sing the Bible and we want to pray the Bible. Um, and in my, in my book, I talked about how um, we can use the Bible in a couple of different ways. We can pray scripted prayer where we're actually taking scripture, a psalm, a prayer, or maybe even just a passage of scripture and actually just personalizing that and praying it. Or it can be very developed. It, it's taking biblical allusions and biblical themes and putting it in our own voice. But either way, the Bible should be saturating our thought process and even our language. Again, it doesn't have to be just quoting it, but the Bible is worshiping and addressing a beautiful God with yeah. beautiful words. Third, our prayer should be Trinitarian. And again, that doesn't mean every prayer has to mention the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, but all three of those persons in the Godhead are involved in everything, right? They're involved in creation. They're involved in redemption. They're involved in ultimate restoration. They're involved in our sanctification. And for instance, in Ephesians 3, Paul, Paul just thinks Trinitarian. And so in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19, he's praying, and this is, this is actually written out as a prayer, that the Father would send the spirit to make sure that the son dwells in our hearts. Yeah. And that's just a sentence or two. And it's just, it's just the way he thinks. It's not a formula. It's just a heart gripped by the glory of God. So our, our prayers should um, involve the Trinity. Fourth, our prayers should be thoughtful and reverent. And again, that doesn't mean academic and dry. It doesn't mean there's no room for spontaneity, but it means thoughtful and reverent so that our prayers don't get repetitious. Yeah. Our prayers get repetitious sometimes in using or repeating certain words like um or just or yeah or yeah god or saying the name of jesus in every other sentence or they get repetitious in that we just keep praying the same themes over and over again and they're kind of meandering and so i think if we're thoughtful and reverent we we guard against repetition and what i would call maybe sometimes an over familiarity in our prayers which sometimes are majoring in God's mercy and love and forgetting about his trend. We're kind of forgetting who we're talking to. Yeah. So thoughtful and reverent, number four. Number five, our prayers should be gospel-centered. Gospel should be motivating our prayers. The gospel is the gateway to prayer. Without the gospel, there would be no prayer. There would be, there would be only the expectation of cursing and no blessing. Um, and the gospel is also the storehouse of every blessing. The greatest blessing of the gospel is the gospel. The greatest blessing of the gospel is that we know God through yeah. Christ. So yes. gospel-centered, sixth, theological. And again, that doesn't mean they need to sound like a, a seminary uh, thing. It just means they're, they're, they're weighted with the great theological themes of the glory of God, the Trinity, the, 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 the fallenness of man and the glory of our salvation. Otherwise, they can become simplistic, 
And again, we tend to just pray our, our immediate temporal needs. Um, so they should be theological. And number seven, kind of the, 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 the engine for all of them is that they should be well prepared. Yeah. Again, they, that doesn't mean that, well, let me put it this way. Nobody, most people would not think about standing up and preaching a sermon without some preparation. Most people would not try to lead music in church without some preparation. I think we often feel like we can just wing it. And again, spontaneous prayer, that, that's wonderful. But if it's not, if there's no thought, it, it tends to say, stay superficial, shallow, kind of meandering and repetitious. Uh, and so I think just putting some wealth, some, some thought into it, maybe even practicing the prayer, that's not unspiritual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those are the seven yeah. principles. That's brilliant. Well, we're going to enjoy expanding on lots of these points um, throughout sure. the interview. In your book, you talk about how the entertainment-driven culture has helped pave a way for this casualness in how we can approach God mm -hmm. and a lack of understanding of His holiness, and how and how how it helps breed this. Tell us about that, Pat. Yeah. Well, we certainly live in an entertainment-driven culture, <clears throat> and. Uh, I hope I don't step on any toes here, but I'm, I'm going to just tell an anecdote that I heard some years ago. Um, I don't know which church it was. Uh, I think it was a big church out in the western part of our country. That's as much as I'll say. Um, and the, the church service was patterned one Sunday. This person who was telling me was visiting that Sunday. There used to be a show on in, in the U.S. called uh, Last Comedian Standing. Okay, and uh, the church service that Sunday was patterned after that and was called the last preacher standing. And so the church service had all kinds of videotapes of famous preachers, probably Billy Graham and others. And then probably whoever preached from the church was the last preacher standing. Now, again, I don't wanna be judgmental. I'm sure it was engaging, um, probably interesting. Uh, but to pattern a worship service after a game show seems like there's going to be danger in the long run, okay? And our entertainment-saturated culture, you know, there's certain ways of thinking that, that get imported with that that are very worldly and not biblical. Yeah. So yeah. I think our entertainment culture, um, a lot, you know, the whole seeker movement a while back, um, the emergent church trying to make trying to adapt the church to the culture uh of course that makes sense in a certain sense we want to be relevant we want to speak to the culture but there's great danger in it too yeah yeah i think besides the entertainment culture what sometimes makes for an over familiar fam familiarity is again there's these tensions in scripture about who God is. He's both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent, obviously, meaning he's beyond anything we can even imagine. He's not like us. He's other. Imminent means that he's drawn near to us, especially in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Well, if we major in imminence and forget transcendence, um, <clears throat> again, it, it, you know, it sometimes sounds like Jesus is not just the lover of my soul. He's like my girlfriend. Yeah. And, and it just gets, it just is, is not, it's watered down. Uh, so 
imminence and transcendence. We need to keep the balance there. It's the same thing with the fact that our, our attitudes as worshipers should combine both reverence and rejoicing. It should combine both intimacy and, and reverence. And again, our, our fallen nature tends to like intimacy over reverence, uh, tends to like rejoicing over, again, reverence, and things just kind of get off. And it's possible to err in one way or the other. I mean, some churches are too formal and too, it's so scripted, it's so whatever that God seems inaccessible. But I think in the last number of years, last number of decades, we kind of erred on the side of God is kind of like our buddy, yeah. um, more like a grandfather. And I am a grandfather and I love being a grandfather, but I know the difference between being a grandfather and a father, yeah. right? Yeah. And, 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 and then finally, I think uh, another tension that we don't always navigate well is uh, God is love, but he's also holy. Yeah. And I think we have a hard time with holy because yeah. again, it's, it means it's completely different. He's, he's exalted and he's morally and spiritually pure and he cannot and will not tolerate sin. Yeah. Yeah. So by, by sometimes not navigating those tensions well and our entertainment driven yeah. culture, we can, yeah. we can kind of err on um, a superficiality uh, kind of a um, over familiarity, yeah. you know, casualness yeah. that after a while isn't totally honoring to God and it's not even satisfying yeah. to us. Yeah, for sure. You, you picked up on, and you mentioned there two movements that are pressed against the church in recent times, the emergent movement and the seeker sensitive movement. You know, you can argue that the public face in many parts of the world today is the prosperity gospel, which has yes. brought with it this name it and claim it new apostolic Absolutely. reformation where people can, they think, speak prosperity or health into existence. Just touching that for us a little bit, Pat, as well, about how we can make sure that that doesn't become, you know, a part of the, the church's language as well in terms of how we pray. Sure. That's great, David. Um, <clears throat> besides the more what we might call crass name and claim it sort of prosperity meaning health and wealth there's sort of a <clears throat> a subtler evangelical version of um uh psychological well-being uh sort of um god is all about fulfilling all my potential and yeah. uh it's it's kind of the the incursion of uh, sort of a humanistic psychology hierarchy of needs and all that kind of stuff. And that's, that's, that's a little subtler. It's not quite as crass, but it, it also uh, is dangerous because as one person said, God did not come to um, baptize all my felt needs. He came to crucify them and show me different needs and different desires and so on. Yeah. So the health wealth thing has has different forms. I remember a time years ago <clears throat> when I was I was kind of being strongly influenced by sort of charismatic Pentecostal things. And um, I don't think I got really totally into the health and wealth thing. Um, there, there's a certain for for things to gain a hold in the church, there's got to be some truth in it. Right. 
the truth is that we are to pray in faith. I mean, yeah. Jesus makes outrageous statements about faith, right? Whatever you ask in my father, in my name, my father will do it. So um, there's some truth in it, but our fallen nature loves to grab hold of those things. And again, it's, it's immediate. Um, so uh, it could be, I want this job or I want to get married, or we want children, or a little later, we want our children to move out, or, or, or <clears throat> but sometimes it, it's even, it's things that we instinctively feel are really important, like we want our marriage healed, or um, other things that are, uh, you know, our wayward child to come home, and those are, those are important things, and again, there's a tension between I think some reformed people can too quickly go to, <clears throat> well, Lord, if it's your will, and it's probably not, I'm praying this, so help me to accept that it's not your will. <clears throat> I don't think that's what Jesus died for and what he taught us to pray. But on the other hand, there can be a presumption. And what if, this, if I think this is good, it's guaranteed. Yeah. Um, and again, I think if we're biblical, one way I say it is we're going to have a robust theology, say, of healing and prayer. We're also going to have a robust the theology of suffering. And again, I don't think we like tensions. We like, we like to gravitate one way or the other. And again, sometimes reformed people, I think, give up too easy. We become, we become too passive and too accepting. And charismatic folks sometimes become uh, uh, presumptuous. And it's almost like, I, I've got the key, and if I pray the right way, it's going to happen. Yeah. I, think, I think being immersed in scripture helps us to keep the tensions in tension. Yeah. And like I said, we have a theology that, that God loves to answer prayer, and we have promises, and we want to be like the Puritans and, and pray and plead those promises. And yet, we understand we're not home yet, and God is sovereign and he works in his own way in his own time. Yeah. So I think I keep coming back to this thing that we don't like tensions. We like to gravitate one way or the other. Yeah. yeah. And I think we can learn not only from scripture, but um, the history of the church. Yeah, really helpful. Thank you. You make a great point in the book that supplication can come a lot easier than adoration and confession. How do we avoid our prayers becoming like the grocery list that we were just speaking about and also in turn turning God into a genie-like figure? Yeah, I think, um, again, I, I, I believe I have the spiritual gift of stating the obvious, so I often do that. Uh, I think immersing ourselves in scripture, immersing ourselves in the Psalms, which are kind of our prayer book, our hymn book, um, praying biblical prayers are going to keep us praying the whole counsel of God, just like we want to preach it. So making sure that we're that we're including heartfelt adoration, thanksgiving and praise and confession in our personal prayers and in our corporate prayers. If we forget those, then we're just gonna go immediately to supplication and they end up being, this is what we feel like we need right now. And I don't know about British culture. I imagine it's the same. In America, we like things quick <laughs> and we, we sort of have this entitlement that we're we're entitled to our best life now. We're entitled 
to a good life. And, and that's just not, not scriptural. Um, I think if we're being like Hosea says, Hosea says, know the Lord, press on to know the Lord. And what that says to me is, is again, that um, knowing God in Christ is better. God is the greatest joy in every temporal blessing, <clears throat> but he himself is greater than that. And if we don't believe that, then God becomes a means to an end, and it, and it easily gets into the grocery list kind of thing. But if, if, we're, if we're praying like David did in Psalm 63, your love, O Lord, is better than life. Yeah. Um, whom have I in heaven but you? And, and on earth, there's nothing I desire besides you. That is a free man or woman. And that's the kind of person, you know, there's the promise, if we delight ourselves in the Lord, God loves to give us the desires of our heart. So as C.S. Lewis says, if we aim at heaven, we get it, we get earth thrown in. Yeah. If we aim at earth, we ultimately lose everything. So press on to know the Lord. Uh, again, I think we can learn from the church that even supplication itself is not just asking for what we need right now. It's, um, well, the late David Paulson, biblical counselor, whom I owe a great debt to, he used to talk about three times, three types of supplication prayers circumstantial, transformational, and kingdom prayer. Circumstantial is what we normally go to. Yeah, we're praying for health. We're praying for traveling mercies. We're praying for a project at work and so on. Nothing wrong with that. Transformational prayers are, Lord, in this situation, this is what I would love you to do, but, but even more importantly, change me. Make me a more patient person. Teach me to love like Jesus. Teach me to bear up under trials. So transformational prayers. And then kingdom prayers are really praying for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel. Yeah. And do we often remember to pray for the persecuted church and, and yeah. things like that? So I think we can learn from um, people who have done a lot of good thinking about prayer. And as I said, the reformers used to pray um, civil authorities, ministers, salvation, and the afflicted. Another way of doing that is praying inside out. We're going to pray about our church, other area churches, our community, our country, the world. Yeah. So I think all of those things um, can help us not get into the grocery list. Yeah. This is what I need and want right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. How, uh, sorry, what role should the gospel play in our public prayers? <clears throat> what role should the gospel pray play? Um, I think the gospel should be, again, central to everything, uh, everything we, we think about and pray about. Uh, as I said, the gospel is the gateway. Without the gospel, we have no access to God. We have no promise of answered prayer, and we have no expectation of blessing. And the gospel is the storehouse. And in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul prays that we would know the gospel, the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the good news, what is the good news? It's not just that we're forgiven. It's not just that we're going to heaven. It's that we can know even now the glory of Christ. Um, so I think the gospel should motivate our prayers. It's our access. And the more we, you know, I've been a Christian almost 50 years. 
I think I've become increasingly gospel-centered, realizing that the, the gospel of God's forgiveness through Christ and his acceptance and the indwelling spirit and the hope of heaven, all of these are, are so much weightier and important and satisfying and God-honoring than all the good things yeah. that I want. Yeah. So I think the gospel being the gateway and the storehouse, that, that mentality should keep us focused on what whatever I'm thankful for. <clears throat> I'm most thankful for your grace in Christ. Yeah, yeah. How and when can the Bible be used in corporate prayer? Well, I think the easy answer is always. Uh, <clears throat> in my book, I talk, to, I talk about a couple of different ways the gospel can be used. I'm sorry, the, the Bible can be used. Um, it could be scripted prayer, which again is, um, I'm just I'm just praying scripture. Uh, last Sunday night, we had our monthly prayer meeting, and our pastor led us all together. We just prayed through the book of Philippians. He would read a long section of Philippians. He would just point out a couple themes, and then he would just have the congregation, you know, take turns, just stand up and, and lead us in prayer. So that's kind of scripted. You can take a psalm and just personalize it or paraphrase it. Um, that's a good way to start. You know, uh, again, our pastor sometimes will address the congregation and say, for our congregational prayer this morning, I'm going to pray through Psalm 67. And then he'll say, you know, this is a good way to learn how to pray. You just take scripture and you just speak it back to God. And the longer I'm a Christian, the more my devotional times, I used to think of it in terms of part one, read scripture, part two, pray. Now it's more of just a dialogue. I'm praying what I'm reading. Yeah. So you can take any passage of scripture and turn it into a prayer. So for instance, Deuteronomy 32, four, verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. So here's, here's, a, here's a paraphrase, or here's a prayer based on that. Lord, we live in a culture where we crave security, stability, and strength. But we praise you that you are a solid rock under the shifting sands of our lives. We cry out for justice, usually for ourselves, and still feel frustrated and unsatisfied. But we praise you, Lord, that Christ Jesus satisfied your justice so that we could live by your mercy and seek the good of others. So that's just a short little scripture that can be turned into a, a good prayer. Yeah. Um, so it can be scripted prayer, or often it's it's developed prayer. It's the, the more your mind is saturated in the Bible, the more you are comfortable talking in front of people. Um, your mind's just going to grab scriptural ideas. I mean, Paul does that. The Psalms even take earlier scriptural yeah. themes and incorporate yeah. them. Yeah. So developed prayer is probably the way most people are going to want to do that. So I think the Bible can be used all the time. And again, I think you could start by just taking a, a, a passage of scripture or a psalm or a prayer and just personalizing, just pray through it and kind of add the, your own details or the details of your family or your, or your church. <clears throat> and then you could change that I to we, and it becomes a prayer you could lead yeah. a family, a Bible study. Yeah. Uh, or a church in. So I think starting with scripture itself and 
doing it personally and then turning it into um, uh, a more corporate thing. So in, I, I wrote an article recently and um, I, I, gave it a I gave a closing exercise. I said, immerse yourself this week in Colossians 1, 3 through 14. Meditate on this beautiful, balanced, reverent, Trinitarian, gospel-centered prayer. Got all my <laughs> principles in there. <clears throat> then write a personal prayer of adoration, confession, and supplication using I in your prayer. So you're just writing a prayer based on that scripture. Finally, turn it into a corporate prayer using we and use it to lead your family, Bible study, or church. So that, that, that's, a, I think, a pretty simple pathway to... Yeah. Um, yeah. Move towards using the Bible in corporate prayer. Brilliant. Thank you. You've mentioned and you've touched on already, um, you know, the fact that we have uh, a Trinitarian God. We know that the God of the Bible is three persons. What does the Bible teach us about praying to the <laughs> Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit? Yes. <clears throat> Thank you again for for not giving me lightweight questions. These, these, these really made me think this is great. Well, I think the first thing the Bible teaches us is that each person is fully God. They have the same essence and attributes. They are all God. And in fact, it's the Trinity that makes it specifically Christian, right? Each person is involved in everything God does. Each person is involved in creation. Each person is involved in, in providence. Each person of the Trinity is involved in redemption. Um, Usually, I think that the usual pattern in scripture is we pray to the Father through the Son in or by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think that would be our, our normal pattern. But in John 14, Jesus talks about, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So I think it's appropriate to pray to the Son. Now, praying to the Holy Spirit is a little more controversial. There's, I couldn't find any actual examples of that although the holy spirit is mentioned in prayers a lot of times i did think of a sort of contemporary example um the the hymn holy spirit which i believe is by keith getty and Stuart townend um, starts out this way holy spirit living breath of god breathe new life into my willing soul so those authors, those composers who are, you know, very, very biblical and write wonderful music, thought it was appropriate to teach congregation a song that was directly to the Holy Spirit. Now, I probably, well, in my personal life, I pray to the Holy Spirit all the time. When I'm starting my devotions, I, Holy Spirit, you inspired what I'm going to read today. Illuminate my mind and animate my heart. Help me to get it. Strike my heart, like Augustine said. I think corporately, more often we're going to pray to the Holy Spirit in a prayer of adoration that maybe mentions the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or it could be a supplication because we know that what the Father plans or designs, the Son accomplished, but it's the Holy Spirit who brings it home to our hearts. So I think there's ways of, of including all three of them in prayer, although the normal sort of pattern that we see from Jesus is praying to the Father through the sun yeah. by the power of the Holy yeah. Spirit. Yeah. How do you handle unbiblical prayer? And should we still say amen? <laughs> I thought that was an interesting question. 
when I heard unbiblical, <clears throat> I kind of thought like, what kind of prayer is this? It's like unbiblical, like thank you that Jesus is not the son of God or something like, <laughs> like that. And I thought, no, no, we don't say amen. But as, as an example, Pat, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this. Somebody may be praying to the father and then thank them for dying on the cross for us as an example. <laughs> okay. um, yes, that's, I would say that's very confused prayer, right? <clears throat> Um, and I also came up with a couple other phrases, sub-biblical, you know, it doesn't really rise very high, or vaguely biblical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but now I have another category, like pretty confused biblical. <laughs> uh, certain things, of course, we're, we're just going to kind of, oh, Lord, have mercy on my brother there, you know, just kind of chalk it up to whatever. Um, I think if there's sub-biblical prayer or vaguely biblical prayer, I think we might find ourselves saying to the Lord, Lord, I affirm such and such, but I, I don't think that was said very well, or I, I don't think that's true. Um, I guess that's kind of the prayer version of being a Berean. We're still examining the scriptures to see if, but I, I wouldn't want to, I, I wouldn't want to, uh, I wouldn't want to encourage that often because I think that's going to be very distracting. Yeah. If you found someone regularly praying, thank you, Father, for dying on the cross, maybe it's time to look for another church. I don't know. Um, so I think we can, we can make those mental adjustments. We can talk to the Lord because everybody, you know, says things you realize, oh, I, that, that, that wasn't, that wasn't very good. Yeah. Um, so certainly if something's really unbiblical, we don't, we don't say amen. I think we can make the mental adjustment and say, Lord, I, I affirm that, but well, that was, that was not so good. And like I said, if it's happening all the time, there may be a problem there. Yeah. Yeah. You give a great example of a prayer that you remembered from more than 50 years ago. You fed me breakfast and how this stands out as a good posture for us to take into <clears> prayer. Tell us about that and how how comes you still remember it 50 years on that? Yeah, um, I'm just going to read Ecclesiastes 5 because that that this this starts that chapter in my book. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2 says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That's, that's some weighty counsel from the Lord about not babbling. Okay. So on this particular day, many, several decades ago, we were having an early morning prayer meeting in church. And this young man, college student, um, we just, you know, we, we closed our eyes. We went to prayer and he said, Lord, this morning I woke up with a bad attitude and instead of killing me, you fed me breakfast. Well, that's pretty memorable. Um, and I, I, I've remembered it because it was so striking, but I thought that's exactly right. A bad attitude is offensive to God. I have no right to have a bad attitude. It's worthy of death. And instead of killing me, which is, again, striking language, you fed me breakfast. It was all about the grace of God. 
So as I thought about his prayer, not only was it striking, but he acknowledged his sin, a sin that we might not even pay any attention to. I mean, we have bad attitudes all the time. He was thankful for grace. He wasn't depressed. He was just grateful and amazed yeah. at, at the grace of God. It was humble. It was reverent. It was spontaneous, thankful, and brief. Yeah. It was all the things that Ecclesiastes yeah. said we should do. Yeah. It was not the sacrifice of a fool. It was not rash. And it was a few words. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. How is the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 a model of clear, concise, and comprehensive prayer? Well, it's certainly concise. Thousands three categories again, circumstantial prayers, transformational prayers, and kingdom prayers. If you look at, uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to the prayer so I can use the verse numbers. So in verses 9 and 10, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, it's starting obviously with worship, but the first thing he prays is a kingdom prayer. He's praying the biggest kind of prayer, your kingdom, worldwide kingdom, your reign and the attending blessings come and your will be done. Okay. One, one line. The circumstantial part is very short. Give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> um, give us what we need today to, to honor you, to love you, to follow you. And of course, that can be, you know, you can go off riff on that for a long time. And then the transformational part is verses 12 and 13. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So in just a few lines, in the briefest of prayers, Jesus has modeled for us kingdom requests, circumstantial requests, transformational requests. It covers everything. Could not be more concise. Yeah. And the striking thing is that when his disciples asked him, teach us to pray, he didn't pontificate on prayer. He just gave him a prayer to yeah. pray like this. Yeah. In regards to crafting a well-prepared congregational prayer, you've noted right for the ear and not for the eye. Why is that distinction important? Well, uh, one person who reviewed my book gave, gave it a basically good review, but he didn't think that was a good idea. He thought that was silly. He thought, look, you're writing it um, and you're going to be reading it. So just go with that. I think my point there, David, is people in a congregation on Sunday morning they're not reading that prayer, they're listening. And they don't want it, you don't want it to sound like you're just reading a prayer, even, and I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about deception. You want them, you want it to sound like you're leading them in prayer, not just reading a prayer, okay? So you're actually praying and they're gonna be listening. So you want this to sound right. Now, the challenge for that is, I, I talk about in my book, I talk about two other kinds of prayers, written prayer and studied prayer. Studied prayer is um, you come to the pulpit or wherever 
to the lectern with some bullet points. Okay, so you know, kind of know where you're going, but it it's it's more spontaneous. Okay, um, that's the way my present pastor and Pastor Kevin DeYoung, that's the way they chose to do it. They're very biblically literate and very comfortable speaking in front of people, and that's a wonderful thing to do. So so that's study prayer, written prayer, which is what I do because I just I just want to craft it. I, I want it. I want it to be striking and so on. The challenge there is I am reading it, but I don't want to sound like I'm just reading. It. So there, I think um, you, you, you put in some pauses. You change your inflection or your volume from time to time and you add transitional phrases. So it sounds flowing, okay? So I think the basic reason is uh, if people, if people think, okay, this is a part of the service where, I mean, it would be the same thing, I think, in a, in a sermon. If you just, even if you write out a manuscript, if you just read it and your head's down the whole time, it's not, it's not very engaging. And I think the same thing is true with prayer. We want, we want this to be a time where we're coming together into the presence of God. The reality of God is, is awesome. He's listening. He's gracious. He's powerful. Uh, a written prayer can be very helpful because you can say things in a striking way. You can craft it. But I think by adding those little things, it just sounds more real and flowing and I think more engaging yeah. for the congregation. Yeah. You mentioned at the top of the interview that you don't actually remember your first public prayer, but you remember that you were probably quite nervous. How would you encourage church members who feel anxious praying in front of large groups of people? Yeah. Well, there's there's all kinds of situations where people might pray publicly. I mean, it could be a husband and wife, right? It could be a family devotion, could be at a Bible study, um, could be just opening some meeting or something or a, a, some ministry. Um, so I think I think growing Christians should be able to do those things. OK. I think I said this before, but I don't think everybody is expected to be able to lead Sunday morning. Okay. Again, I don't, I don't think anybody's excluded, but I don't think everybody that that's, I think that's a leader thing. So obviously pastors, elders, worship leaders, and mature Christians could be called upon to, to lead the congregation prayer, either called upon ahead of time or spontaneously. So that's one thing I would just say, look, if you're anxious about it and you just like get tongue tied, God may not have called and equipped you to do that. Yeah. So relax. Okay. But there still can be some, some butterflies. So um, what are some reasons why people get uh, anxious? I think one is that people might fear that they don't know the Bible well enough. Um, I think a lot of people, even in their own personal prayer life, they feel like after two or three minutes, I've, I've run out of things to pray. And so I just start repeating myself. And the thought of going up and doing that in front of other people would be like a death. Um, and I think, again, one of my main points in the book is just, it's okay to prepare ahead of time. That's not unspiritual. I think in we Protestants think, well, we're not, 
We're not like Catholics or we don't have all these liturgies and stuff. It's heartfelt, it's spontaneous and spontaneous equals heartfelt. And so anything prepared would be formalism, okay? But think about the Psalms. You know, you know that many of the Psalms are acrostic Psalms. So for instance, Psalm 111, 22 lines, each line begins with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Yeah. You better believe that was well prepared. Yeah. And yet that psalm expresses great passion and so on. So we want to get rid of this dichotomy between like if you think about it ahead of time, that's not it's not spontaneous, it's not Protestant, it's not evangelical, it's not, it's not very authentic. Okay. So I think um I would encourage people to um if they're if they're going to be leading in corporate prayer, like on Sunday morning, again, prepare, whether it's some bullet points, here's some things I want to hit, or whether you write it out. And I think practicing, okay? I mean, I, I pre, I've, been, I've preached for decades. I still practice yeah. sermons because I, I just want it to flow. I want it to be undistracting. I don't want to be hemming and hawing and so on. Yeah. So I think um, preparing, practicing, and I think if you've got some ideas about, okay, there's adoration, there's confession, there's supplication. Am I going to do all three? Am I going to do two of those? Am I just going to do one? What are some things I want to cover? And again, we talked about uh, leading in supplication we can learn from the church. We can learn from the reformers. We can learn to pray inside out. We can learn to pray circumstantial, transformational kingdom prayers. So I think there's some things that that will help us. Um, and uh, again, I think preparation is, is, is really important. And then just to remember, um, I'm not up there to uh, impress people. I'm not up there to, I'm up there to love God and love yeah. The congregation and, yeah. and try to connect them in prayer yeah. and if i hem and haw or whatever i'm not justified by yeah. how, how eloquent i am yeah, so, yeah. that's good. a few thoughts thank you how has congregational prayer in your in your own church impacted and helped your personal prayer life <clears throat> well i think good congregational prayer one of the things that i think we sense is this person knows god I think that's just powerful yeah. when we're when we're being led by someone and, and you feel like this person really knows God and God is real and he is those things that are being prayed. Uh, I think it can galvanize this sense of we're not just going through the motions here. We are we are in the presence of the living God. Mm. Uh, and, and that's what I think we want to strive for. I want to know God. I want to help my brothers and sisters know him, praise him, confess to him, and so on. Um, we want to help people know that the greatest privilege of all is knowing God and, and Christ whom he sent. I think another thing, uh, I remember um, we have a, a family in our church who had uh, have a little girl and when she was first born, she had, I think she had like half a heart or something. It was a very serious medical condition. It wasn't clear that she was going to make it. She's, she's probably three or four now, and she's still with us. But 
during that time when, when she was very, very little, um, one of our staff members uh, led us in an evening service in a prayer for her. And again, I don't remember all the things he said, but I still remember that prayer. It was passionate. It was heartfelt. It was pleading with the Lord. It was acknowledging the grief and the, and the struggle of family. I think that family was really encouraged. I think we were, we, we were encouraged to pray with faith and the Lord answered it. Mm-hmm. You know, she's mm-hmm. still with us. So I think we see the power of unity and agreement in prayer. Yeah. Um, I think congregational prayers often, again, expand our, our concerns. God is much bigger than how my marriage is doing or my family or even just our church. As important as those things are, God is a God of the whole world. Yeah. And, you know, to be praying for missionaries, to be praying for persecuted brothers and sisters, to be praying for other churches in the area that God would bring revival and fill their churches. Yeah. To be praying for our civic leaders, our schools, our businesses. Uh, I just think we don't tend to think of those things. And good congregational prayer, again, is, is teaching us by example yeah. um, how to pray, yeah. uh, how to pray biblically, how to pray passionately. Yeah. So those are, those are some ways. I think one last way is that good congregational prayer, um, it, it's tethered to the Bible. It, it may go off in, in some you know, creative ways, but it's tethered to the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And that that just keeps us in the right place. Yeah. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. You've been a Christian for a long time. I'm really interested into knowing what resources or books or sermon series have been most helpful in helping you grow in your faith and understanding over the years, Pat. Mm. <clears throat> well, I I was like I said, I was immediate. Um, the, the first person who impacted me was C.S. Lewis. And so I devoured everything he wrote. I don't read C.S. Lewis anymore, except he's still the most quoted Christian of the last hundred years, I think. So you're, I'm always reading C.S. Lewis quotes. But Lewis, what he did was, and what he's done for so many people, is open our eyes to the wonder and the beauty and the glory of God in Christ. Yeah. Um, other people's, Charles Spurgeon, you know, I, I think I'm a Brit at heart, right? Um, Charles Spurgeon's sermons, uh, again, eloquent, beautiful, powerful, evangelistic, comprehensive. Uh, I was very influenced by, I read a lot of his sermons back in the day. Um, you know, when I, I think of people who have been really, uh, you know, the, the reformers, Luther, um, I'm, I love Luther, I love his earthiness. I love his. Um, he he rediscovered the gospel, and it it changed not only his life, it changed Western civilization. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, when it when it was time for me to do my uh, a thesis for a master's program, I did it on justification by faith. Um, so, I think in in the last twenty years, the two people who have influenced me the most are John Piper and David Paulison. John Piper um, took all the sort, I had been all over the kingdom (laughs) in some ways, and he brought all those sort of disparate 
emphases back together in a totally God-centered way. And I, I think he has made me more God-centered and a lover of the gospel. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just owe him so much. Yeah. And David Paulison, uh, one of my main mentors in biblical counseling, has shown me the riches of scripture and the relevance. It is, it is a gaze on everything on life. And it, it, it gives you an entree into the deepest areas of people's lives, even some very modern psychiatric problems and stuff. And, and it addresses the heart and life in ways. Um, so Lewis, Spurgeon, Luther, and then more recently, uh, Piper and, and uh, uh, David Paulson have been just wonderful. I've had wonderful pastors to serve under. Uh, my, our first pastor, Tom Stark, Kevin DeYoung, present pastor Jason Halopoulos have been yeah. great. The last two I actually served, you know, at the church under. And yeah. So found they've been very encouraging and helpful. Yeah. So. Pat, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. The last hour has just gone by so quickly. Before I go, or before we go, do you have any closing thoughts? And what is the best way for people to follow you on social media? Well, I that last question, I'm really embarrassed because I'm not on Facebook. I'm, re I'm really just not on social media much. I think you could follow me through Crossway Publishers. Um, uh, I have a, an, an article, so I'm on the, I'm on the roll at Together for the Gospel. Yeah. Um, or the Gospel Coalition, rather. Um, but um, yeah, I probably should be more on now that I've written a book. Um, <laughs> as far as closing thoughts, um, I'll just I'll just say to um, the most important thing we do as Christians, our first duty, even more important, if properly understood than evangelism or being salt and light is we worship God. And um, everything flows from that, the first great commandment. Uh, and as people say so often, all our ministries needs to be the overflow of our yeah. relationship with Christ. But when I think about that, I think about what Jesus said in John 15, about in the vine and the branches. He says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Mm -hmm. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And then at the end, he says, I've told you these things that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 15, seven is a staggering promise. Abide in me. My words abide in you. Ask. And it will be done. My father will be glorified and you will have joy. So prayer is so essential to our worship and it's so essential to our, our service. Um, I often get up in the morning and as I'm getting out of bed, I say Psalm 16, one and two, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Um, I, say to, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good thing apart from you. I'm basically declaring at the break of day, Lord, I can't do today without you. Mm -hmm. I can't do it without you. And I counsel all day and I have some hard situations. I'm just utterly dependent on the wisdom and grace and he's he's just available all day yeah. in prayer yeah and then we give thanks and corporate prayer is just expanding that and seeking to lead brothers and sisters into that same abiding asking thanking 
glorifying the father joyful relationship yeah yeah amazing well i'm going to make sure that we've got the link to your new book praying in public thank you david in the description below so wherever you're listening to this or watching this make sure that you check out this book pat thanks again for your time i really enjoyed it i enjoyed it too david god bless you mm.